Yes, good morning. I'm not Travis. And as I told the other group, I'm the first of several not Travises who will be speaking to you in the coming weeks uh, as we move into this transition phase. Uh, we're looking for a new pastor, and uh, we need to be prepared for that. So um, that's actually the subject this morning. Um, I am currently reading through the Bible. I'm, I started it on New Year's, but I'm not reading through the Bible in a year. I have failed at that enough that I know I can't do it. Um, I still have in my Bible the little schedule for reading through the Bible in a year, and it's almost worn out from all the failures I've had with it. So I decided this year I'm going to read through the Bible at my own pace. And uh, here we are in the middle of August, and I am in the first chapter of Judges. Um, so, and I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Um, so in fact, we're actually going to talk this morning from the book of Judges. When, um, when, when you're reading through the scriptures, you often come across passages that make you ask the question, why is this even in here? It doesn't seem to make sense. It just doesn't fit. Uh, I think of the story of, um, of uh, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Just an absolutely sordid affair there where he had a child by his daughter-in-law. and uh, You don't like reading that one out loud almost. Uh, and if you look at it, you'll notice it's stuck right square in the middle of the story of how Joseph got sold off into slavery and went to Egypt. And so why in the world did God put that right there where he did? And I don't know. You know, there's, there's others. Uh, two bears killed 42 young boys at one point in the Old Testament with dealing with Elisha. You, you, you have to stop and, and wonder, why did God do that? Uh, and and I, I think he has his reasons. Sometimes, if nothing else, it gives us an excuse to dig deeper into the details. Uh, sometimes, if you study, you'll, you'll learn something. You'll, you'll pick up something about Jewish culture or Jewish history that you never would have gotten if you didn't read that. Sometimes, it's, it's, it's just there, and it will illuminate something else in the Scriptures. Uh, maybe you don't find that till later. But anyway... As I was reading through the scriptures, I came across one of those that I had not noticed before in the first chapter of Judges. And uh, that's what we're going to uh, look at this morning. This same story, exact same story, it's almost word for word given earlier in the book of Joshua, chapter 15. And so I had just read through that just days or a week or two before, um, and I didn't even notice it there. So when I came to Judges 1, I hit it. Um, Give you a little context before we start reading the, the passage we'll talk about today. Um, the, the chronology, the joint chronology between the book of Joshua and the book of Judges gets a little mixed up and, and challenging to untangle. But I think here in, in chapter 1 it's pretty clear. Joshua has died and Caleb is still alive. You remember Joshua and Caleb were the two good spies out of the ones that went into Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Um, so Joshua has been leading as they make their conquest and begin to take their land. Um, but he's, he's dead now, 
Caleb is still around, but they still have some conquest work to do. They haven't finished the job like they were supposed to. And so they have asked the Lord which tribe needs to go next in taking their land. And the Lord answered, and he said, I want Judah to go. And so Judah, the tribe of Judah, teamed up with Simeon. And the reason Simeon teamed up with him here is because if you remember, or maybe you don't, uh, Simeon didn't really have any of his land, any land of his own. When the land was being parsed out to the twelve tribes, uh, when it came to Simeon, he only got land that was within the boundaries of the tribe of Judah. He had cities and areas around them, little islands, but it was all within the boundaries of Judah. So it's completely natural when Judah's getting ready to go take his land, um, take its land, uh, the tribe of Simeon went with them, and. Uh, and they had good success. They defeated some Canaanites and some Perizzites, and they defeated Bezek. They defeated Jerusalem, although they did not occupy Jerusalem. That won't happen for another four centuries or so when David comes along. Um, I think it was the, the Jebusites that were there at the time. Um, they fought against Hebron, uh, and they, they killed off some of the remaining giants that were in the land. In, in Hebron, one of the places where they encountered the Canaanites and 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 successfully so was in the land called the Negev. Negev. Uh, some of your Bibles will translate that directly, N-E-G-E-V. Some of them will just simply call it the Southland or the South, because it is indeed at the very southern part of of the lands that that Israel owned. Um, and I mentioned that because the Negev. Uh, is prominent in what we're going to talk about this morning. And after, after all that, they turn their attention to a city called Debir. And Debir is described as formerly having been known as Kiriath Sefer. Sefer, I'm sorry. Kiriath Sefer means city of books. And so there's speculation that there was something of a library there or a seminary there, and it would have been a pagan seminary. And after they defeat that city, they will rename it from Kiriath Sefer to Debir. And Debir is the same word that's used to describe the inner sanctuary in the tabernacle. So it goes from pagan seminary to uh, sanctuary of the Lord. And uh, anyway, that's, that's the context of what's coming. I've got a map here to show you, and I'll leave this up as we read um, what we read so you can follow along. That's just the whole... Uh, area of of Israel's land and you can see the red in all caps reds the names of the the 12 tribes you can barely read anything I'll zoom in on the next one to show down in the southern part you see Simeon down there in the far south a little bit north of there you see uh, Judah um, uh, not Judah um, yes Judah and and then Benjamin and then Ephraim and so forth where the lands were. Uh, if you hit the next, next slide, you'll see there's the city of Debir that was formerly Kiriath Sefer, and that's what they have just finished. And then the last thing you see there, about from uh, the city of Beersheba, southward from there, is what you would call the Negev. The Negev is still there today, still has the same name. It's, it covers a broader area than it did then. But that is the Negev that we're seeing as we read. So I'll leave that up while we read so you can look back and, and see where everything is happening. 
So we're going to read in Judges chapter 1, verse, verses 11 through 15. So beginning in verse 11. Then from there, he, and he would be the tribe of Judah, specifically Caleb, who's leading, he went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir was previously Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him my daughter Aksah as a wife. Now Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And so he gave him his daughter Aksah as a wife. And then it happened that when she came to him, she incited him to ask her father for a field. And then later she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me springs of water also. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless uh, our looking into your word this morning. Give us of your spirit and help us to uh, understand it by him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so first of all, uh, I will confess to you that both the idea for this sermon and most of my outline, I um, shamelessly stole from Charles Spurgeon. All right, he wrote a sermon on this back in the late 1890s, and um, uh, I happened to run across that when I hit this passage as I was reading through and and chased this little rabbit to try to figure out why in the world are we told this story about Axai and Othniel because we never hear of the two of them again as regards this land or any of the things that happen here. We do hear from Othniel later. Othniel happens to be the first of the judges. And if you remember in this time of the judges, Israel was going through these cycles. They fell into sin and God would punish them by letting their enemies take them over. And they would repent and then God would send a judge, as they're called, to... Uh, to deliver them from whoever was oppressing them at that point. Othniel was the first of those deliverers, and he will eventually uh, shake off some of, the, some of the oppressors and give Israel 40 years of peace. So he's a good warrior. He took over, he, he managed to capture Debir, and later he uh, was the first judge. Um, Aksa's asking of her father... Her, this story of her going to her father and asking for additional lands after she was married to Othniel. Uh, Spurgeon made the point in his sermon that uh, that story, the manner in which she did that, uh, sets up a good model or a good pattern for prayer. We have a daughter going to a loving father with a need, and, and we can learn from that. We can, we can take from that as a reminder, especially to us today here in RBC, because we have a need. We need a new pastor. And it's, it's more than simply needing a new pastor. We need to understand where, where God has us going next. Travis, the Lord is taking him into education, at least for the moment. Where is he taking us? 
We need to know. And so I thought this would be a good thing to just walk through and look at the pattern that Aksah laid down for us as she approached her father. You're not going to learn anything this morning that you didn't already know, I don't think. Um, this is all just reminders for us, I think, at, a, at an opportune time. Um, so, did I skip anything? Um, one, one thing that to, to keep in mind is what, what caused Aksah to go to her father is he had given them a gift, a dowry, if you will, when they got married, of some land. But it's down there in the Negev. And if you, you can tell just by the colors on the map, you look up around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all that, and there's some green there, and it looks, looks lush. Well, if you've ever been to Israel, you've been to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and green and lush is not what you think of, even in the green parts of the map. So when you get down to the Negev, uh, it's very, very dry. And so Aksa is saying, we've got this land, but what can we do with it? We, there are very, very few crops we could grow here without water. And so she decides to go back and ask her father for additional land that has some springs on it. It's it's very, very simple plot. All right, I've got three main points this morning. I learned that from Travis. You're supposed to have three points, right? Um, you, you may get a little scared in point number one because it goes on and on. Uh, don't, don't worry. Points two and three are probably 5% of the time. We're going to spend most of our time on point one. Uh, so take comfort. So point number one is her consideration of the matter. In other words, her approach to asking of her father a blessing. For you and me, in the parallel that we're setting up here, that Spurgeon set up, uh, it's her approach to prayer, or our approach to prayer. And she gives us a good model in the way she approached her father. And you see, I have, I have five points there, five things that characterize how she approached her father. First of all, she asked uh, she didn't have to ask. She could have not asked and done other things that didn't help. Uh, but she asked. Second, she knew what she needed, and she knew why she needed it. She didn't go to her father without thinking that through carefully, and she knew what to ask very specifically. Thirdly, she sought her husband's help in asking her father for what she needed. She sought his help. Fourth, she considered that she was asking her father. In other words, you, you approach a father with a need differently than you approach someone else. And her approach to him is the kind of approach that you would use going to a loving father. And finally, number five, she approached him humbly with all the right decorum, but she approached him very eagerly. So we'll, we'll talk through those things and see what they, what they say to us, what they remind us of. First of all, the first characteristic of her asking is that she asked. She didn't have a pity party. We've got all this land. We can't do anything with it. What are we going to do? She didn't call up her friends and complain and gripe. She didn't whine to her husband. She asked. And that should remind you of something that we have been told in the New Testament for you and me, right? Uh, James told us, you do not have because you do not ask. We need to ask. 
Jesus himself said that. We'll look together at Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Um, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it, we, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and, the one, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Paul told, us, Paul told the Philippians in uh, chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Ask. RBC has a need today. Will we ask? Will you ask? Or, or will we moan and groan that we've got to go through this again? Will we just sit back and figure someone else will take, take care of that and it'll happen? Or will we ask? Will we go to the Father and ask for Him to fulfill our need? I hope we will. So that's the first characteristic of how she asked her Father. The second thing is she knew what she needed and she knew why. And that may, it may seem like that should go without saying, but sadly, I think if you listen to a lot of our prayers, you'd never figure out what we need or if we know why we need it. We, we get very generic. We get very, oh, Lord, save the world. Lord, give us peace on earth. Those are great prayers, but they, there's not much actionable there. And it's clear that she knew what she needed by her own request. When she went to her father, she said, You gave me land in the Negev. Now give me some land with springs on it. She knew and she said so. And I think the fact that she was prepared and knew what her need was and why she was asking for it is also clear by Caleb's response, her father's response. And you don't really catch that in our English Bibles um, but as, as I read, read up on this, um, apparently the, the most literal rendering of what Caleb said to her when she stepped down off that donkey, uh, the New American Standard says, what do you want? Uh, the literal rendering would be something like, what to you? And you may have seen that was the title of my sermon this morning, what to you? And that's apparently an ancient... Hebrew idiom, a way of saying things that gives a little more insight into what's going on than the simple question, what do you want? The meaning of what do you want depends a whole lot on how it's said. What do you want? What do you want now? You know, it could mean that, or it could be a very sincere offer. Um, and you, you look at the way the, the English Bible's translated, most of the modern ones say something like, what do you want? King James says, what wilt thou? In other words, what do you will? Uh, the NIV may hit the closest, apparently. It says that Caleb said, what can I do for you? And as I understand what I've read, the, this Hebrew idiom, what to you, it, it kind of has a dual focus. And it means, what do you need that I can help with? It's a very specific offer of assistance. What do you need that I can help with? And so the very fact that Caleb sees his daughter, and she hasn't even told him why she came to visit yet. Uh, 
showed up with the donkey. She's getting off, and Caleb says, what do you need that I can help with? Uh, he knows her well enough that the reason she would come like this has been thought out carefully. And so she approached her father with a very specific need and a very specific request. And again, how often do you and I approach God with very generic shotgun prayers that we haven't thought out? We don't really have any specificity. We don't have any detail of understanding of what we really need for, for Him to give us. And, you know, what's God going to do with that? Well, we have an example. Jesus gave us an, an example um, in Luke chapter 18 verses 35 through 41 we will read through I've cut some of this out to shorten it down but let's read it as Jesus was approaching Jericho a man who was blind was sitting by the road begging and he called out saying Jesus son of David have mercy on me what does that mean it's a generic prayer right no specifics and Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. So uh, it, he didn't do it in a chiding way. He wasn't, he, he wasn't short with the man. But Jesus said, Give, Change your prayer. Make it specific. Tell me, what is it you want me to do? And he did. He prayed, I want my sight back. And if you'll notice, I've, I've underlined the sentence there. Notice how similar that is to that what to you idiom that apparently means what do you need that I can help with? He says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him that same kind of question that Caleb asked to his daughter when she came to him for help. Um, so, why do we need to be specific? Is it so God will know what we need? No, He knows what we need. It says, I mean, Matthew 6, 8, we won't look at this, but we're told, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He doesn't need those details. We need those details. We need to understand. And I really like... As, as I was reading Spurgeon's sermon on this, this, this one really stood out to me. I like what he said. So look at his quote here um, on this subject. He says, Think what you're going to ask before you begin to pray, and then pray like businessmen. You know now. You don't have to waffle around. This woman does not say to her father, Father, listen to me, and then utter some pretty little oration about nothing but she knows what she's going to ask for and why she's going to ask for it. Pray like businessmen. You have to be prepared. You have to think things through to pray like businessmen. And so I ask us today as RBC, uh, in a time of transition, a time of uncertainty, uh, we need to be prepared as we pray to our Father to meet this need. How are we going to do that? What preparations do we have to make together so that we can pray effectively, so we can pray specifically? I think it's worth, worth pondering. Know what you need and why you need it and tell your Father. 
So the third thing I think that characterizes the way Aksah approached her father is she sought her husband's help in asking her father for this extra land. Uh, we saw that in verse 14. We're going to read it. I'll read it again to you here. It happened that when she came to him, came to Othniel, she incited him to ask her father for a field. Now, it kind of sounds like she's telling Othniel, I want you to go to my dad and ask for more property. And some of the, uh, some of the commentaries kind of take off on that. And they, the way they read this is she asked him to do something and he declined. And therefore, she had to go do it herself. And so that would, that would be persistence in prayer as a lesson or something. I don't think that's what it says. That's not my view. I don't believe you see that in the text. I think the text makes it fairly clear that what she did, she went to her husband and, and basically invited him to put his blessing on what she wanted to ask of her father. Will you agree with me that we can go to your father-in-law and ask for money <laughs> or whatever it is and that's probably not an easy thing for Othniel to do um, some of you guys remember back when you were young husbands and what would it have felt like to you to have to run to your father-in-law for help I know that that was that, that was a little bit worrisome for for me my father-in-law was uh, had done well in life. He was a research chemist. He worked at Dow Chemical for many years. Had many, many patents with his name on them. Um, it may interest some of you parents to know that he was the, the inventor of the stuff that goes in baby diapers that makes them so incredibly thin and yet able to hold so much liquid. Um, you can thank Bill Harper for that. Uh, he invented that stuff. And when I f first met him, he had already left Dow to take over and run a spinoff company that Dow put out there to try to monetize some other polymers similar to that for other purposes. Uh, so he was, he was a very successful man, a very smart man. Um, and it would have just, I mean, my mindset from the beginning was, Todd, you need to do well. You need to do well. <laughs> Because you're, you know. Anyway, Othniel probably is looking at Caleb the same kind of way. It's Joshua and Caleb. I mean, uh, who else is above Caleb in, in their culture? And uh, Aksah knew she needed him to agree with her before she went and asked her dad for more. And he did. I think he went with her. And the reason I think that is she got down off of her donkey. That tells us that it, was a, it took a trip to get there. It was a tr she had to travel. And in those days, women generally are not going to be traveling alone. And so Othniel probably was with her when she went to ask. If he wasn't, at least an entourage of servants was there that Othniel would have, uh, would have commissioned to do it. So he was, he was in agreement. Um, she wanted to be able to go to her father and ask for what she needed um, as, a, um, as a unified family. And I think the same thing is true for us when we go to our father. We need to be able to do it as a unified family. We need to agree with one another. We need to understand one another and, and what's going on. 
Uh, so Othniel kind of, in, in some sense, he humbled himself to join into that request, even though he's a warrior. He probably didn't want to do the farming. You know, he might not have cared about the land, uh, but he joined in with his wife. So that's a picture of corporate prayer, praying together. And it's very, very important. The Bible puts a, puts a high premium on corporate prayer. Um, God listens to our prayers with a very special intent when we pray together. And I don't claim to understand that completely, but it's very clear in the New Testament. Let's look together in Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. Jesus speaking again. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name... I am there in their midst. Does that mean he doesn't answer my prayer when I pray alone? No. We are called to get into our own prayer closets and pray. But there's something special when we come together as a family, as a body, in unity, and we pray to God together. There's something special about it. We need it. It helps us understand things as better ourselves. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus understood the value in corporate prayer. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went off to pray, what did he ask for? Pray with me. And of course, the disciples weren't doing so well that night. They went to sleep. But he, he woke them up and asked again, pray with me. He understood that in his human flesh. Um, Prayer is not just for the purpose of getting things we need. It's, it has benefits for us otherwise, and especially when we pray together. I, I think of a, a passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14 when Paul is teaching about the spiritual gifts. And he's, he's on the topic of, um, of uh, the gift of tongues and when and how that should be used and whether, whether it's more appropriate in private or in public and so forth. And, and he tells them, you know, I have those gifts as well. But, and I'm going to read one that's not on your screen here. Um, Paul says, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with the mind also, with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, that's worship, but I will sing with the mind also. And the question is, if you have that gift, when do you cut loose and let the Lord speak through you? And when do you speak with understanding or in a way that others will understand and he says and now now it is on screen for otherwise if you don't pray and sing with uh, in a way that people will understand how will the one who occupies the place of the outsider know to say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you're saying he doesn't benefit from your prayer he's not edified in the next verse talks about that the other person cannot be edified if you're praying in the Spirit in, in some language that he can't understand. And I think that, that carries right over to you and me. If, if I'm doing all of my praying in private, that doesn't benefit you at all. The Lord might enjoy hearing from me in my private prayer closet, but he wants me to pray with you as well and vice versa. We need to be together. We need to edify one another. And it even helps us understand you know, back to the point about Axos. She knew what she needed and why she needed it. 
Would everybody in here right now say we know exactly what kind of a pastor we need and why? I'm going to say no, we don't know that yet. And as we pray together, we may learn from one another and we will figure that out. It's, there are many, many reasons to pray together corporately that go beyond simply getting our needs met. Um, so, the takeaway for us as we seek the Lord's guidance in calling a pastor, we should pray together. And so I would encourage every one of us to take advantage of opportunities and even create new opportunities to get together with intentional, scheduled, corporate prayer as we approach this, this transition time and let our needs be made known to the Lord. We have prayer meeting every Wednesday night over here in the choir room at 6.30. You're cordially invited uh, our life groups hopefully will be praying about these things and maybe we can get together on the side as well we need to be together praying as we approach this so fourth the fourth thing that characterized her asking of her father is she considered that it was her father she was asking this of it's different when you ask your father for something than it is when you ask someone else for something um, th think uh, think about how easily and unapologetically children ask their parents for stuff all day long. Can I have a snow cone? Can I have this? Can I have that? Can I have that stuffed monkey with a pacifier in its mouth? That was my daughter. And she got it, by the way. Uh, they ask and they ask and they ask and they don't apologize for it and in a, in a good family when, with good parentage most of those requests the answer is no you know your kid doesn't get it all the time but it doesn't deter the kid the kid will just keep asking and keep asking um, Matthew 7 verses 9 through 11 says, what person is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Fathers love giving good things to their children. Our Father loves giving good things to us. Now, as we get older, our requests get, you know, a little bit more prudent and circumspect and maybe a little less often, um, but we can still ask. My father uh, died when he was 92, and there was never a time when I didn't know that if I needed to, I could go ask him for help, and there would be no upbraiding as, uh, as uh, James talked about, when, when you pray for wisdom, God will give it. And He'll give it without upbraiding, without reproach, without any kind of, of um, uh, scolding to go with it. Here you are again, needing... No, that's not the way God our Father answers our prayers. We have a Father who loves us and wants to give us good things. We need to remember that. Finally, the last thing, uh, last characteristic of how uh, Aksaw went to her father. She went humbly, and yet she went very eagerly. Um, 
that may remind you of something that you've read in the New Testament. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at the time of our need. The invitation is there. We are to come uh, boldly, as the King James says, with confidence, as the New Americans said. Um, we don't have to apologize to the Lord when we come ask Him for blessings. We don't. He's invited us to ask for those things. So, summing all that up, point number one, uh, Aksa's asking of her father is a beautiful model, a beautiful picture of a daughter going to a loving father and seeking help with a need. And we would be very wise to follow that similar pattern as we go to the Lord, as we go to our Father in a time of need, in a time when, uh, when there's uncertainty among us. It would just be wise to follow that pattern. Um, so that's point number one. Let's look at point number two, which is, is just her, her actual act of asking, what she said. And you could call this her prayer, if you will, in, in bringing it forward to ourselves. I find it very interesting that the very first thing she said after he asked her what to you is she said, give me a blessing. Um, now that, that could be just a trite greeting that, that you read right over and you don't think about it. As she, The next thing she said, she got right into the specifics of what she needed. But as I read that, I, I think what she's saying is, I'm here looking for a blessing from you. This is not a desperate request. It's not like we're having trouble paying the rent. It's not like the baby's going to starve to death. This is not a desperate situation, Dad. I'm coming to you asking for a blessing. We will be able to get our marriage off the ground and our family started much better if we have springs of water. We're looking for a blessing. And she made that very clear and she understood what she was asking of her father and that's that's an attitudinal thing and we should be the same way tell God we this is not because we deserve it this is not because if we don't get it something awful is going to happen we're asking you because you're our father and we want a blessing so that was the first thing that that struck me in her prayer second uh after pointing out that I'm asking for an additional benefit on top of the benefits you've already given me. Uh, she used those former gifts, those previous benefits, um, as, a, as a launching pad for the request for her next one. It was part of her plea. She said, you gave me the Negev, now give me springs of water. Um, so it, it's, it's like the prior blessings that God had given her serve as justification for asking for more. That's kind of backwards from what you'd seem. You almost want to feel guilty. Well, you gave me so much already. Should I really ask for more? With our Heavenly Father, that's exactly what we should do. She took that encouragement from what He'd already given her and, he turned, and she turned that into a request. And we can do the same thing. Um, finally, she didn't ask for a temporary solution to tide her over until they got things going or whatever 
She didn't, as, as uh, Spurgeon put it, she didn't ask for water. She asked for springs of water. Perpetual, ongoing solution to her problem. Um, our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It all. Uh, we need to ask for what we need. And we, not, we, don't, we don't need to be um, ashamed or um, embarrassed that we're asking for so much. Axel wasn't. So, that was point number two. Point number three, her success. This is, I took this, the name of point number three came from Spurgeon. I don't, I think it's, it's not really Axel's success. It's all about her father, what he did. Uh, that she could, she could say I was successful in asking, but look at what he did for her. First of all, she took, she got immediate encouragement from her father before she even told him why she was there when he said to her, what to you? What do you need that I can help with? We've got that invitation already. We have it many places in the scriptures. That invitation is already there. We can already take that encouragement just like she did. Again, as I mentioned, she was encouraged by the past blessings. Um, it would do us good, I think, to sit down and, and write out all the blessings God has given this church over the years. It would be a long list. But those should make us, um, you know, more eager to ask for additional blessings. They should not make us feel guilty that we, we already have enough. It, it should be quite the opposite. Um, and then finally, the father gave what she asked for. He gave in large measure. And he gave without any upbraiding or reproach or resentment or ridicule or anything like that. He's a loving father. She came to him with a need, and he responded. <clears throat> so the challenge for us this morning is to recognize that that pattern fits for us. We have that invitation from our Lord. What do we need to be doing? Well, I think we need to get businesslike. We need to understand what we need and why, and so we can talk to the Lord. We need to get together. We need to pray together. And if we don't have proper times in our schedule right now, we should make room for them. Then we need to get on our donkey, and we need to go to the Father, and we start asking. Um, we already have that invitation. We're going to stand and sing together a song now. And, and I hope you will ponder uh, how we need to approach the Lord in this time. And, and get ready for it. Our, uh, stand with me, if you will. Um, I, our instrumentalists are going to be coming. Um, or Scott, I guess that's who's coming. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the many, many blessings you've given me, for the blessings you've given this church. Uh, we find ourselves in a, in a time of uncertainty I thank you for the promises you've given us that you hear us. I thank you for the invitation you've given us to ask. And I pray you'll give us the, uh, the sense uh, to ask with, with knowledge and understanding. Um, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.